Paul, over the last couple uh, months, has been looking at counseling situations and uh, principles and things like that, which have been really helpful. Uh, today, we're going to kind of continue a little bit on track with that. We're going to be talking about the identity crisis here in America and the confusion about really who we are. You see, we have so many messages out there coming at us nowadays. So many different truths. So many different uh, things that tell us that we should be a certain way, that we should be this way or that way. And to be fair, we're not sure where we stand anymore. A lot of times for Christians, what happens is when you have message after message after message telling you of who you should be, it chips away a little bit at your faith. It maybe rocks you a little bit. But today I just want to encourage you that we need to remain strong in who God says that we are. So first off, let me, let me uh, define identity crisis. I do like this. This is Merriam-Webster's dictionary definition of identity crisis. I thought it was actually pretty clear and succinct. Simply, it's a period of time of uncertainty and confusion in which a person's sense of identity, who they really are, becomes insecure, typically due to the change in their expected aims or roles in society. So it's simply saying that society is telling you that you should be one way, but you had learned that you were supposed to be this way. Now you don't know how to act, and so you're uncertain in really who you are and what you're supposed to be like. What happens is we see this all throughout our culture today. And in fact, there's a list here of just a few key ones that I think that we've seen predominantly in the last few years. The first one, of course, is the gender biological sex thing, right? We have seen a lot of people say that gender now is fluid, that there's more than one gender, or more than two genders, sorry, and that your biological sex doesn't necessarily actually mean that's who you really are. All of these things can change. Well, what has actually happened? It's created real tension in a lot of people's lives because they are now uncertain and confused about who they are and what's supposed to be right, what's supposed to be wrong. So our culture is throwing a lot of different things at them, telling them to be a lot of different ways. You know, what's interesting is uh, I was just actually at, or uh, I was at a training session uh, last year for coaches where we had talked about gender development and how muscles develop differently in boys and girls. And that what? There are some that are prone more to concussions because of weaker less developed neck muscles. Boys tend to develop them a lot quicker. Well, I was very interested in that fact. But the fact of the matter is there's a lot of people out in the world today that hold on to their gender, hold on to their identity in this direction, and when tension comes up, when they're uncertain about really now who they are, or people start questioning who they are, they get identity crisis. Okay? The other one is nationality and background. Now let me start off by saying knowing where you come from is not a bad thing. But there are a lot of people who hold on to this as who they truly are. I.e., I'm sure some of you guys have seen this as an example, the, the, the DNA kit things, right? How many of you guys have seen commercials for those? How many, of you, have you see, how many of you have seen the one where the lady's like, yeah, you know, I found out I was like 20% Greek, and so I went to go explore my Greek heritage. But no one in her family knew they were Greek. It came back to that she's Greek. Well, it's not bad that you learn something new about yourself, but now she's like, well, now I'm, you know, I'm going to explore Greek and I'm going to start doing all these Greek things. 
What happened? She found out a little bit about herself and what? It changed who she was, which is very interesting. Now, we also see this in a lot of other ways, right? I'm, I'm Polish. I'm not going to, okay, I'm not denying that. I end in, my name ends in ski, okay, Rineski. But the, my great, great, great grandfather, Peter Rineski, Peter, I'm not even going to try it now. Um, my great, 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 great grandfather came over from Poland slash Russia, depending on which boundary line you look at, um, back before World War I. He was truly Polish. Uh, I am not truly Polish. About the only Polish thing about me is about my last name and the fact that I eat Polish food. I don't really hold to Polish stuff. I may root for them once in a while in the World Cup, but they usually let me down. So, you know, they're on my low end of my list. But the fact of the matter is, nationality is not bad to know about yourself. It's good to know where you come from, but to hold on to that as who you truly are is a scary thing. Now, we also see this in politics today, right? We see some people claiming to be Indian, just 1%. You know, that, that there's a little bit of DNA in my background there. Okay, does that really define who you are then? Does that make up who you are? The answer is no. And then we go on. We see Christianity and religion. Now, you might say, okay, how does this create an identity crisis? The fact of the matter is, if I say, hey, I'm a Christian today to just about anyone, what does that really mean? Exactly. Yeah, it could... It, it, your guess is as good as mine. The fact of the matter is Christianity is used as an umbrella term to incorporate so many different things. In fact, you even see people, you know, who, right, the big, the big movement now is that, hey, I'm a gay Christian. Okay, well, adding that, you know, adjective right in front of Christian, why? Because we see that there's some tension there. You're no longer just a Christian. I mean, Christianity back in Bible times when they first started this, what happens? It meant something. You were a follower of Christ. You were following his teachings. You were willing to live and die for him. Nowadays, it really does just mean just about anything. That you, mean, that you believe that, hey, there's probably a holy book, that there is a God, uh, and that Jesus was actually on earth. That's about it. That's Christianity nowadays. Everything else is very expansive. So the thing is, we, we get some tension because what happens? Well, when we say, hey, I'm a Christian to someone... They have some expectations for us. And sometimes there's tension in that, right? We say, well, am I living up to their expectations? Or what do they expect from me? How, how, they, how do they expect me to act here? And so we get some tension in that. All right? And that could create an identity crisis even within us, even within Christians. Then we also see one with parenthood, right? Now, what, mothers, what motherhood and fatherhood means today was very different 60 years ago. Am I correct? Yeah? Okay. Uh, these things have been under attack, too, and they have changed, right? The world has said, well, to be a successful mother, what has to happen? It's no longer just about your family. You also have to have what? Money, a full-time career. You have to be just as good as your husband is. And then the fathers, there's, there's similar actions like that. Now, I used this illustration in the first service. I don't know how many people got it. But if you have watched TV at all, when you watch uh, TV shows and medias, uh, when they talk about motherhood and stuff, and you have kids and you're at home, uh, one thing about motherhood that kind of unfortunately makes me sad when I watch this is uh, when mothers are working with their kids, what do they always have in their hands on TV shows? Someone said it. Alcohol. Yeah. 
If you watch TV and you watch the parental sitcoms that are on TV, whenever the parents are handling their children or talking with their children or something, guess what's not far away from them? And what's the assumption? Social media, or not social media, sorry, just media in general, TV shows, some movies and stuff like that, show what? That if you have kids, they make you drink, right? I'm not going to lie, having kids is tough work. But the fact of the matter is that this is actually creating somewhat of an identity crisis because, well, we see how the mothers and we see how the fathers and all these figures handle stuff on TV, but am I like that? Is that how I'm supposed to work? And then when we battle that with the truth, there's tension now, creating an identity crisis. We're uncertain about what is my role as a parent supposed to look like. Fathers, we have very similar things, right? TV shows portray fathers very differently, too sometimes not even around. The question is, who do we compare ourselves to? Who are we recognizing these truths from? The next one is self-slash-vicarious self living. This one also applies to parents usually pretty well, too, which is what? The parent can either live themselves, their own life, or the tendency is to live their life through what? Their children. Their children. That can be a huge problem because it, it creates an identity crisis in the kid because the kids can't measure up to the parents' expectations of them, and they don't know who they want to be, because all they're trying to do is be who their parents want them to be. And then when they're away from the parents, what happens? Tension, identity crisis comes into play. The Same with the parent. The parent has lived their life so much through the kid, that when the kid leaves the house, what happens? They don't know what to do, because they don't know who they are. We have some issues there. And the last one is this. Reality, t- or reality versus social media. Reality versus social media. Think about this. What we put on our Facebook page, our Twitter accounts, our Instagram, whatever it is, does that really portray who we are? We are conforming our life to a social media page. Facebook is revealing only certain things about us. Now let me ask you this. I've seen a lot of your guys' pictures. I'm a pastor. I have connections, right? It's great. How many of you guys put bad pictures up on Facebook? What? No one? Really? Shocker. Why? Because we always want to portray our life on our social media account as what? Grand and perfect, right? Guys, I love hanging out with my kids. I love having fun with my family. Those are the pictures I put up online. But is that all of who I really am? No, and when I look at that over and over and over again, I think, man, this is so good. My life looks so good. It should be perfect. And then when I face reality and realize, no, I have struggles. I have difficulties. What happens? Tension, identity crisis. There's something. Why isn't it that I'm measuring up to this thing? It's because I'm trying to compare myself to something else that's not real. And so social media tries to conform us to its image, to what it wants us to look like. Now, I'm not telling you to go home and put, post all your struggles and horrible pictures and stuff like that. What, social media is a good tool. It also can be a bad tool. The fact of the matter is I just want us to realize there's natural tensions happening in our culture today, things that are being promoted. You guys have seen this all throughout this last week. I mean, even with the abortion talks, right? What are the different truths coming at people in these conversations? Either the baby is a baby or the baby is just a clump of cells. Either it does matter that you're killing someone or it doesn't matter at all, right? There's tension in all of these things. We're having conflicts, and we have a problem. 
And so what this all boils down to is this single question of who are we? That's the big question everyone wants to know. Who, who am I? At the core, who am I? And the Bible has four key areas that I want to look at today. This is in no way a comprehensive list of all what the Bible says about who we are. But I'm just going to show you some key ones that are, are, I think are important for us to know as Christians today in our world. The first one is going to be who are we as humans. The next one is who are we in our gender. The next one is then who are we as man. And then finally, who are we in Christ? The reason I split up human and man is because we're going to see in Genesis 1, right, we're part of creation. We're a created being from God. But yet then, as a part of man, we're also in Adam. And there's some very distinct things that we've gained from our forefather that separates us from the rest of nature, from the rest of creation. And that's extremely important for us to realize. So let's take a look at this first one. If you would turn with me, Genesis 1, 26 through 30, you, most of you probably have this memorized. But we're going to start at the very beginning with who are we as humans? What do we need to know? It says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over everything that creeps over the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heaven, and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Now what does this short little passage show us about who we are as humans? The first thing is, is that we are created. Notice that we didn't just happen on the scene. It wasn't by accident. We didn't emerge out of mook and gook. Uh, and it wasn't, you know, we were always here. We hear a lot of those things today in our culture. But the fact of the matter is what? We're created beings. We were created by who? God. Very good. And in doing so, God made us unique, didn't he? Human beings have something very unique. God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Which points out point number two here. We are a reflection of God's handiwork. You jump down to Romans chapter 2. What happens when, he talks, when Paul is talking about, hey, creation reveals the majesty, the power of God's handiwork, right? Guess what? We are a part of that creation. We reveal God's handiwork. We reflect it. That is what it means to be in the image and the likeness of God. Now, notice going on, God has given us a purpose, right? We don't just exist for the sake of existing. God had a purpose in mind when he created humans, didn't he? And what was that purpose? He said, they will have dominion over creation. Which means they're going to work it. We see this expanded in chapter 2. God places Adam in the garden and tells him to keep and tend the garden, to work the garden. Okay, And that's what his job is going to do. He's going to be what we would call a steward. 
Someone who takes care of something for the master. That is man's purpose, right? He was going to have subject over creation to take care of it. And in chapter 2, we're going to see he also what? Names it, which is super cool. Going on, we also see that he's given laws to follow. Chapter 1, what's the law that he has to follow? What's the command? And God said to him, be fruitful and multiply. Command, right? Even in the very beginning, we had some commands. We had some things that we needed to be obedient to. Chapter 2, we also know, and chapter 3 is going to expand this too as well in Genesis, that what's the other command? You can eat of any of the trees in the garden. Just don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? God gave us some commands to follow, even, in its, even with creation in its perfect state. There are some things that we needed to follow. There are laws for us as humans. The next one is this one. We have provision given to us. Notice that God didn't just leave Adam go in creation and say, have at it. He said, no, guess what? I've already provided everything you'll need, but not only for you, but I've also provided for the animals. Everything that's green is yours. Have at it. God provides for us. You know, that's probably one of the bigger lies that we have today that, to face in our culture is the fact that we provide our own stuff. As Christians, we need to remember that it's God who has provided all that we have. How do I know that? Look at the Lord's Prayer. Why does Jesus include, give us this day our daily bread, when he prays to God? Doesn't he already have his daily bread? No, Jesus is simply teaching the disciples, recognize that everything you own, everything that you have each and every day, comes from your Creator. These are all good things. Now, where's the tension? We see this in in society coming up at us. Well, we were created by, or we're not even created, we're here by accident. Some people struggle with the idea of even having, do I really have purpose here? Does my life have any type of meaning? The answer is, yeah, God created us with purpose, with meaning to it. We are created to reflect his handiwork. That's why we care so much about the early stages of life. Because it's valuable to God. Now, the next thing we see here is this is who are we in our gender? So flip over, probably in your Bibles, just to the next page, Genesis chapter 2, 20 through 25. It simply says this as well. It says, The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heaven and every beast in the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused him to go into a deep sleep. And while he slept, he took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into woman and brought her to man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she is taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Now we need to understand who we are in gender, because God created us with gender, did he not? We saw earlier before that what? Genesis 1 revealed he created them, male and female. Did he have purpose for these two genders? The answer is very much yes. And literally, just one chapter over, we see it. So what happens? Well, first of all, again, we see that there is male and female. How do I know that? Because what? Adam goes through, names all the animals, and as he's doing so, he's recognizing, hey, there's something a little bit different about these two animals. And hey, there's not another one of me around. 
And so what does God do? He creates Adam a helper, someone fit for him. And he creates woman. So man and woman, and there's a purpose for them. There's also the fact that, well, God creates these two genders to help one another, right? Men and women don't work or function the same way as each other, right? Men think very concretely. We're task-oriented. We have a one-track mind. Ladies, you're all over the place. That's not, that's not mean. You're relational. You're geared differently. You think differently. God's created us to do this. Why? To complement each other. To be a good helper for one another. Think about it this way. Men cannot have kids on their own. Why did God not just make another man to help him? Couldn't they have gotten the job done a whole lot quicker? Maybe. I don't know. But the fact is he created woman. Because why? Let's go back to chapter 1. What was the purpose for man? What was the first command? Be fruitful and multiply. Could Adam do that by himself? No, he needed someone to help him with that, to complete the task that God had given him. And so there's a purpose to hold on to here. Notice that this story doesn't just end with, hey, Adam said, whoa, man, she's woman, great. No, it goes on. The writer of Genesis, uh, Moses, look, what does he say? Therefore, if you don't have that word like boxed, highlighted from last year when we did the gender, sex, and marriage talk, I want to encourage you right now, take your pen and box that. What does the therefore mean? It's simply Bible study students in Paul's class know this. Therefore means as a result of what has just happened, this is now here. Okay, So because of the story of Adam and Eve... We have, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. As a result of God creating woman for man, a man will leave his parents behind, cling fast to his wife. The two become one flesh, right? And does it end there? No. It says what? They were both naked and unashamed. Notice that there's an appropriateness to our bodies in this context, between a husband and wife. There's an appropriateness to that nakedness. Now, let's just take a real quick look. Where's the tension in our culture with this one? If you go to New York City, you'll see it on some billboards, I'm sure. There are major porn organizations, pornography organizations, that declare what? You could do whatever you want with your body. You could do whatever you want. There's a lot of organizations out there telling you that gender is fluid, that there's more than just man and woman. That man and woman, we don't really even have a purpose anymore. Because we can manufacture stuff, can't we? We can manufacture kids outside the body. We don't need, you know, a woman to help bring life. No, this is scary stuff. But when we're inundated with these messages, what happens? As Christians, we hold to the truth, but then these things come at us over and over and over and over again. And we're assaulted with these things, and tension happens. Let's keep moving on. Who are we as man? This is important to know. In Adam, when Adam sinned, something changed. We need to understand this. Romans 5, 12, 14, 12, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, all talk about these truths. Paul highlights these things over and over and over again in all of his epistles. And you can find this. This is a short list of it. The first thing is that we're born into sin. No one escapes it. We're born into a sin-cursed world. 
Not only that, we are born with a sin nature, which simply means this. We have a tendency to rebel. The lie that culture says that, hey, we are basically good inside is a lie. You leave my toddler go for just a little bit, you'll find out. (laughs) He tends to what? Rebel against what dad says. You know, we were playing in the pool the other day. I was telling him, sticks do not go in the pool. What happens? His tendency is to take the stick into the pool, little by little. It's that tendency to rebel. That's the sin nature inherently in all of us. And it separates us from God. The next thing we see in these verses here is that we're accountable to God. Scripture teaches this over and over again. We will give an account of God for everything. What we've done with Christ. What we've done with his, the things that he's given to us. Provided us with. What we've done with his word. What we've done with our words, right? Jesus makes that point. Be careful because you're going to have to give an account of every word that comes out of your mouth. Interesting. Why? Because we're created beings and we have to answer to our creator. The next one is that we're following Satan. Notice that if you're living in sin, you've got a sin nature, you're following after Satan. We are after the prince of the power of the air of this world. You know, Satan even calls out the Jewish leaders, right? He goes, what? You lie. You reject the truth. And because you reject the truth, you're following after your father, after Satan. That's a hard truth for people to follow. We don't want to think about that. But that's what Paul and what God has revealed to us, is if we're not for God, if we're not trusting in God, guess what? We're actually following Satan. The next one is we're disobedient. Then we also follow our own lust, our passions, and our own thinking. Let's face it, how many messages do we hear about follow after your own heart, right? Go after what you really want. You know, sometimes my stomach tells me to go after that extra quart of I love, man, strawberry cheesecake ice cream is so good. Sometimes my stomach says, just eat a little bit more. But I know that if I keep doing that, not only am I going to get fat, but I'm probably going to get sick. It's not good. And if I just follow after my lust, my passions, and my desires, where's that going to get me? Nowhere. It's not going to leave me anywhere good. And then the last one is that we're all destined for God's wrath. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 makes this very key. Because we were following Satan, because we are disobedient, guess what? Because we are in sin, God has to judge sin. That means all who sin are destined for wrath. Now, if we ended the sermon there, it would stink. You would all be depressed. You'd be like, we're in a really bad position. But the good news is God didn't stop there. Because of what God did through Christ on the cross for our sins, how he shed his blood, how he provided salvation, we can become and have a new identity in Christ. So, here's a very short list of just a couple different things from different verses, okay? First one is we see we, we are forgiven, redeemed, and justified from sin. Not only are we brought out and freed from sin, we don't have to sin anymore. We are redeemed. We are we are given over to God. We are forgiven. And then justified. Not only are we said we're innocent, we're given Christ's righteousness. And then also notice, and I love this about Kelly's song, there are no orphans of God. Why? Because if you're in Christ, you are called a son of God. You are a part of his family, full-fledged. You are an heir to his kingdom. This is cool, because if we're in Christ, we have a whole new identity in him. Then we are also owned as servants. Paul says that we're no longer slaves to sin, we're slaves now to righteousness because of what Christ has done. He goes on, he says, guess what? You have a mission if you're in Christ. 
You're given a task to accomplish, to carry his word, to go and make disciples. The next one is we have the Holy Spirit. This is a cool part because as a church, we have God's spirit indwelling inside of us to continue to transform us and shape us into the image of Christ, to give us strength in the tough and difficult times, to cling to when we need him the most. We also have eternal life. We're not no longer destined to eternal punishment, as Daniel says in Daniel chapter 12. We're destined for eternal life now through Christ. We have an inheritance. We're not broke. We're not poor. We don't have anything. We have it all. We have an inheritance waiting for us in heaven. We have a responsibility. God says, now that you're in Christ, guess what? You're now my ambassadors to represent me. Guys, we talked about that in the Good News Service. You have a reputation to carry out. The Thessalonians had a reputation of looking like Christ. We have that same role that we need to play. is a responsibility to look like Christ to others. We also have a new walk. We don't live the old way that we used to. We walk differently. We walk in a new walk. We walk as Christ wanted us to. We walk in love. We walk in kind speech. We walk in gentleness, kindness, faithfulness, self-control. Right? The fruits of the Spirit. We, have, uh, we are priests. Notice this. Uh, Peter actually talks to us as that we are priests to the nations. As Christians, when we're in Christ, we have a new role to bring the nations into worship. We get that cool responsibility. And the last one is we have victory. If you've ever gone through Revelation, you know that this is very true. That we have victory in Christ. Because he wins. And that we can overcome anything because nothing can overcome Christ. Now why is that? Why do we get this new identity? It's because of who Christ was. He is God. He is real. Which means he existed. He was here on... He's not a figment of our imagination. He's not a fairy tale story, guys. He is real. He was sinless. That means he never did anything wrong. But not only that, he was perfect. He always did what was good. What was right? He is our salvation. He paid for that on the cross. He is all-powerful. Nothing can overcome him. Nothing can diverge his plans. He is living. He is active. He is caring. He didn't just create humanity and step back and said, hey, I'm done. Good luck. He is active in your life, guys. Consistently and constantly working in you and around you. The question is, do we see it? Now, that's all. we have this new identity all because of what Christ has done. We're no longer left as children of wrath, children of disobedience. We now have a new purpose, a new walk. So what does that mean for us? Well, the first thing here is this. Our identity is rooted in who God created us to be and what he has revealed to us. We need to find our identity in who God says that we are. The next one is that our identity is only able to change because of what Christ has done for us. There's a lot of people out there who want to change. They want to make their lives better. But the only way to truly do that is in Christ. Because he's the only one who can really work and shape your heart. And then the last one here is that our identity as Christians must be rooted only in Christ since he is all that matters. Our, our, our identity is in him. It's only in him that we get this thing. So why, why add extra adjectives to it? I'm a blank Christian. Because that makes no sense. If you're a Christian at all, then you understand that your life is shaped by Christ and his commands and his word. So, application. What do we do for this as we close here today? First one is this. Reflect on who God says I am. Jerry Bridges, one of my favorite things uh, I've ever read in any of his books, is that he talked about 
setting up a piece of paper with key verses that talk about the gospel, about who he is and what God has done for him, to help remind him so he doesn't get off track, so he doesn't get more prideful. In fact, preaching the gospel to yourself daily, what? Humbles us. It teaches us to be humble. We don't get arrogant. We don't get prideful. The next one is that we need to commit our lives to Christ each day. We need to do this in the big context and in the little context. The big context, if you haven't trusted Christ with your life, that is where you need to start today. That is the only thing that matters, is that you trust in what God has said in his word, and you place your faith and trust in Christ Jesus and what he did on the cross as your only Lord and Savior. There's a problem. But Christians, don't we fight the battle each and every day, the tendency to trust in ourselves, to go back, to lean on that sin nature, to do our own thing. We do. That's why each day when we put our feet on the floor, we just need to say a little prayer and say, God, help me to commit every decision I make, everything I do, to your word today. The third one is that we need to practice and apply our new identity in Christ. You can't live the same way you used to. The Thessalonians couldn't live the same way they used to. They turned from idols and they followed after Christ. They had a complete change in their lifestyle. As Christians, we have to have that same thing. We do so in Christ. We have the ability to do so because of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, what we have gained through Christ. And the last one is that we need to pray about our mentality of who we see ourselves to be. We need to pray about our mentality of who we see ourselves to be, guys. This kind of goes along with that principle of, you know, don't fix someone else's eye unless you take the log out of your own. Pray. Ask God each and every day, God, help me to see who I truly am who you see me as, okay? Because why? That will not only bring us to a new level of humility, but it will help us to trust in Christ. If we have this mentality of who God says I am rooted in our minds. And so I just want to simply ask you this question is, who are you? You're facing the tensions today in the culture, hearing the messages coming at you every which direction, saying that, no, you are kind of basically good. No, you're not really here for a purpose. No, gender doesn't really matter. You can do whatever you want with it. These are the messages you have to fight against. What is it that you're going to root your identity in? And I pray that as Christians, it's in Christ and his word. If you're not sure where you're rooting it, I pray that you take some time today to think about it and to see that if you root your life in anything but Christ, you're going to be shaken. You're going to find that identity crisis in your life all the time. So as we stand, I want to close in a word of prayer and pray that we deal with this subject. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for the time we had today to look at your word. Lord, first, I just want to personally thank you that we were created with a purpose and we were created uniquely as your handiwork. God, thank you so much for that. Lord, I want to pray that we will just continue to remember who we truly are, who you tell us who we are, because that is the truth of the matter. That is what we simply need to cling on and stand on. And Lord, as the messages of culture all around us come at us in every which direction, help us to defend against, against those lies and help us to stand on your truth. Lord, I want to pray that if there are people in here who are facing identity crises, if they're struggling with their, the purpose that, uh, that you have for them in their life, that they will turn to you and turn to your word and find out what it is that you want them to do. Lord, just be with us as Christians continue to be examples, to be that steward, to be that missionary, to be uh, that servant, to carry out your word to the rest of the world, to live that example, to live the new walk of what Christ has done in our lives. 
Lord, please continue to work with us in your spirit. Convict and guide us. And Lord, I just pray that you will continue to work with us, in us as a church body, as a whole, that we will continue to reflect the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, again, we thank you so much for what it is that you have done on the cross because it's only through that, the only way of salvation, that we have any change in our identity at all. It's because of what Christ has done, how he died for, the, for our sins, how he paid the ultimate price. Lord, we thank you so much for that. God, I pray that as we go out and we go home with our families, that we'll just continue to talk about this, that we will continue to help our kids to be sure of who they are. And pray, Lord, that you continue to help us be sure of who we are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.